This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Can we step back to the 80s when you started WPP? What was your original M&A strategy? Well, if you if you go back to the original document, which I think still exists, you can find it in Cutney's house or wherever, we said our, our objective in the circular that went to shareholders to approve it, the it was issue of new shares to Preston rather than myself. It, it said our, our objective was to build a major multinational marketing services company. That was it. And uh, so uh, when you start a course with a wire basket manufacturer and you want to try and do it in your own uh, life, you know, organic growth is stronger, but it takes longer. So you're probably dead and buried before you, you get to any scale. So uh, if we were going to do it on any scale, and in fact, if we were going to build a business, it had to be done not organically or not just organically, but by M&A. And in those days, acquisitions were a way of doing it. Today, I think it's very different. It's mergers, but we'll come on to that. But uh, in those days, it was how do you come? We, I think in the first 18 months, we acquired 18 companies. And then, of course, the breakthrough, if you like, was JWT Group, which people forget was not just the agency, which is now no longer, very sadly. But it consisted of the media part of the business, which is now Mindshare, which continues to thrive. It consisted of uh, Hill and Knowlton. Actually, it consisted of an agency called Lord Geller, which... Uh, had a sad end to it when the management walked out with the IBM business, which they promptly lost, and which came back, the IBM business came back actually in uh, 1992. It was about three years later, interestingly, from when it departed. And then, of course, you had MRB, Market Research Bureau, which uh, included BMRB, quite a famous research company here in the UK. And that was the core or part of Cantar, which is now part of Bain Capital. So, you know, we had a fast fast start, but the breakthrough was JWT Group, which was 13 times our size. How much did you pay for those on average, those businesses? Well, what do you mean in terms of multiples? Multiple-wise. Well, I can't recall what the multiple was. We paid 525 for JWT and because we found the Japanese property. Well, we knew there was a freehold property. But we thought it was Barclays Square, but it turned out to be Japan. So that was a gross of $200 million. We had to pay $100 million tax. But that reduced the, the net purchase price by 100 million. Of course, margins were appalling at JWT and we improved the margins. So that was a great buy. Ogilvy, I can't remember, I think it was about twice our size. It was about 825 million. No profit is there. And I made the mistake of funding it uh, in part by convertible preferred and forgot that a convertible preferred is really debt. And particularly in a bear market where the conversion rights have no value. And so we were settled with debt. And of course, we had to do a restructuring in, in 1991. So it was a bit of the perils of Pauline, but you know, we did manage to fight our way through. So in terms of multiples in those days, I would say, you know, JWT looked on the surface to be a high multiple. When you looked at the underlying potential profitability, I mean, we did very well out of JWT, not just because of the property, but because they had some good assets. We brought Burt Manning back to run the agency. Don Johnson, who was the CEO of JWT Group, had got rid of Burt a year or so previously, who was his natural successor. So it was highly political. Uh, Ken Roman really... uh, 
there was a disgruntled bunch inside Ogilvy about Ken Roman. Well, actually, David Ogilvy, he didn't have a good relationship on the surface, it appeared to be, but it really wasn't when you dug through it. And when we sent the uh, the fax attack, as we called it, in uh, 1989 to Roman, he, he removed the last paragraph of the letter. So David didn't, when he showed the letter to David Ogilvy, so David didn't see that we had suggested he become chairman of the joint company. But anyway, that's all, all history. So, you know, but value-wise, these, those were good deals. Even today, with with the the destruction of uh, of JWT, the agency, which is extremely sad, not just because you know isn't this is not just a reflection of history, it's value, and I think management comes in with big boots and stamps all over the history. You know, it's an ageist attitude, not just to people, but an ageist attitude to companies in a bizarre way. I and mean, corporate memory is lost. I mean, I remember when I went into JWT Group, um, Jeremy Bullmore and Stephen King were being shown the exit door by um, Miles Colebrook and Alan Thomas, who were taking over JWT. And, you know, and it was the young guns, the young lions. Again, in a way, it was very similar to what we're seeing today, pushing out the old without any reference or understanding. There's an Israeli professor who talks about the difference between wisdom and intelligence. Older people, he says, have wisdom. Younger people have intelligence. At the end of this little uh, YouTube video, he says, uh, make sure your companies are run by wise people and that intelligent people work for them. So the, the older people run the business because they have the wisdom and the younger people who have the intelligence work for them. So I, I, and I think there's, that's very similar. And so I, I said to Jeremy and Stephen, join our board. And to this day, Jeremy still, still is at WPP, I'm glad to say. That's one thing that as he's a leading national treasurer, if they booted him out, uh, there would be up, uproar. When you look at analysing the value of an asset and take back then in the early days of the 80s of WPP, the type of assets you were purchasing, how would you compare that to today with S4? Well, it's a very, very different model. That, that, both Starches, where I was previously to WPP, WPP and Starches were what I call market share models. In other words, and this is not a, a, a phenomenon that started in the 80s with me or John Wren with Omnicom, or probably those are the two, and then later on with publicist and Morris Levy or Dentsu. This is a model that started in the 1950s, so it, it has run its course. I mean, it's been around for 70-odd years. Uh, Marion Harper of IPG used to fly around in a big jet. I think that was, you go back to the history, amazing, actually. I mean, it was sort of some, flew around, you know, flew into London. I mean, when you read some of the books about it, it was quite quite funny in a way. But it started with him, and his view was, I think, that principally for conflict reasons, because, you know, you couldn't service Unilever and Proctor in the same agency. They wouldn't, they wouldn't accept it. You had to have different channels or verticals or organizations. So primarily for conflict reasons, you had separate businesses. And um, so the idea was, you know, you had McCann and you added Lintas. They bought Lintas from from uh, Unilever because it was actually Lever International Advertising Services. That's what Lintas stood for. And they had these separate brands. And it meant you knew if you had competing brands or you launched a competing brand that you would lose you know, cannibalize some of your existing businesses. So it's a bit like detergents of Procter or Unilever. You know, you, you knew you'd lose sales because of cannibalization. But on the other hand, you build your market share overall. So very much what I would call a market share model, whereas S4 is really about growth and about top line growth. I mean, the biggest determinant of 
total shareholder return of uh, added value to shareholders is like-for-like -like growth. You know, this morning, WPP has its uh, Capital Markets Day, and it talks about accelerating growth. I mean, the growth they're accelerating to is about three or four percent a year, which is a modest, a modest target to say the least when GDP is growing at about that rate. But you know, everybody understands that you know margin in the market share models, margin probably is equally important as top line growth, and you balance the two. Certainly in our incentive plans at such as in at WPP, it was very much about top line growth and margin equally equally weighted. Today, I would say it's two thirds, three quarters top line growth, maybe even more than that, but with decent margins. I mean, at, at S4, we're doing 20% after central cost, a bit more actually. There's not much operational leverage in the business in the classic sense. There's a bit. It depends on where the new business comes from. Is there from, more so in digital than it was in the old? Is there, more, is there more what? Leverage in mind? Operational leverage. Probably a little. Uh, you know, we were talking about it with an institution yesterday. I think when we add an account like Mondelez, or, well, I mean, Mondelez is this existing client, but we add, add in an area in the area of content, in the practice of content, or when we add BMW and uh, Mini in Europe, it's going to add, each one is going to add more than 10% to our revenues. And... You know, we had 300 people, we're 3,200 people at the minute. We've had hired in that number. There is a few of the hiring for BMW Mini, but we'll probably be about 35, 36, 3,700 in fairly short order, excluding deals, which will drive us over 4,000. So I would say when we add an account like BMW Mini, we're adding people at pretty much the same rate. If you, you know, within BMW Mini and... Um, Mondelez, we've already had out of scope. So in addition to the scope of the business we've won, we've already added in a few weeks additional assignments. And in that, that's where you get the operational leverage. Your operational leverage is better when you do land and expand, which is you know, win a project, add a project. I mean, you have to add people, but add a project, add a project, add a project. So, you know, our, our whoppers, uh, what we define whopper as our revenues are around um, about $400 million trending upwards, obviously, from that level. So, you know, a, a whopper to us is about uh, $20 million, about 5% of our, of our revenues. The biggest whopper we have is, is Google. Our second biggest is a, a major tech communications company. You can guess who it is. One of the most valuable companies in the world, but we can't say because of an NDA. Uh, a third is a third and fourth will be a BMW Mini and Mondelez. They'll be vying between one another, I think. And then the fifth is Facebook. So you know, Facebook has has come through through land and expand, win a project, grow it. Apple has come through that. Google, to some extent, has come through through deals, but has principally been driven by land and expand. And that's a much healthier way, I think. Big pitches, which you know, Mondelez took nine months, BMW Mini took a year and a week. I mean, these are great drains on the resources. Uh, you know, for the bigger agencies, you know, they could, they've got more resources, but. You know, we're getting there. We're getting able to do it. But we, we, we very carefully assess the likelihood of us being involved you know, or winning, winning before we get involved. And when just on the operational leverage point, so if you just look at Omnicom's or WPP's margin, EBIT margin or operating margin for the last 20 years, it's, it's almost perfectly consistent, whether that's good or bad, in terms of like 11 to 13% margin. 
So very little operation leverage. Today, uh, you know, we used to we used to try. We were targeting twenty percent when I was at uh, WPP. I think we got up to the in the heights of the seventeen eighteen percent level, and they're now targeting. I think in this plan today, they're talking about was it thirteen to fifteen? I think. I think that's the high end, right, for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not historically the case, but you know, that's you know, fifteen percent seems to be that's on net revenues. That seems to be gross profit. That seems to be where they're all sort of aiming for. I think that indicates that to some extent a commoditized business. You know, I think a quotes unquote good professional services business should be doing 20% plus. And you know, at that level you are clearly, you know, if you win an account, I mean there's one account that you know, WPP actually won recently where they basically offered guarantees on media uh, on $160 million of media and they offered 120 days payment terms. Well, you know, any mug can win pieces of business or keep pieces of business. They didn't win that. They kept it. Any mug can win or keep businesses if you offer those sort of trading terms. You know, procurement, finance and procurement do well. In these sorts of environments, particularly, I was talking to our friends in Australia, our companies in Australia just now, and they were saying, you know, how 2020 was the year of the CFO because the CFO managed to, uh, you know, to exercise tremendous control uh, over over what was going on. So I think the margins, I think, should be 20, 20 plus. And you think S4 could get some more operational leverage historically than the... Yeah, limited, limited if if Peter Rademacher, our CFO, was 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 on, he would say, you know, there's 22, 23, 24%, that sort of, you know, you could get, depending on where the clients come from. And obviously, if you're doing deals, it depends on what the margins of the uh, the, of the deal company is. I mean, it so happens, you know, we're, stuff we're looking at the moment, and the margins are north of 20%, but we'll see, we'll see at time. But I, I'm satisfied with 20, and I, I, I would sacrifice you know margin a little bit margin over 20 21 22 a little bit margin over those levels the top line growth just going back to organizational structure yeah how is the way that you've thought about organizing operating companies at a holding company evolved over the years well we're not a holding company s4 i mean we did win ironically we did win a holding company award that just a few days ago and i i Somebody asked me for a quote on it, and I said, or, or the, the organization gave it to us, asked for a quote, and I said, fortunately, we're not a holding company, so we were sort of mis, misclassified. But, you know, the holding company is very vertical. In fact, you know, people talk about simplification, but all they're doing is entrenching the verticals. I was, I was talking to somebody from uh, the Dentsu group just recently, and, you know, he said that what's happening there is instead of being, you know, the, the Japanese talk about one Dentsu. But what's actually happening from and it's the same thing as Maurice Levy with one publicist, they talk about it, but then which is the right way to do it. I mean, because I think you do have to be one. And the same thing applied with WPP. But what happens is you just entrench the verticals. All they're doing is entrenching the verticals. I mean, I'm told that the woman that came from DDB to to run Dens to International, Wendy Clark is now, instead of having one Dentsu, is now making it into separate verticals. Not separate verticals, but reinforcing the verticals, rather like you see at, at Publicis and WPP. And that goes against the idea. I mean, they all talk about seamless. They all waffle on about you know, how seamless they are. The reality is, you know, Victor Knapp, who runs along with Wes Taha, 
our content practice, Media Monks, goes around the world taking pictures of, of publicists lobbies where they say one publicist or power of one or whatever it is and then they have 26 different agency names underneath it makes no sense whatsoever now having said that it is true that when you slam these things together you lose value that's what's happened i mean i I was again you see it at publicists you see it at denso you know maurice levy had i think had the right strategy but he insisted on sticking the publicist's name over sachi and the agency has been destroyed Burnett, the same. Why do you lose value? Well, you lose value because, you know, these, these, these brands have, you know, there's a subtle balancing act in the holding company sort of model. It's a subtle balancing act between trying to get everybody to work together and maintaining the strength of the brands. And I think you get caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. And, and the process is a long-term process, but unfortunately the market, which is focused on much short, shorter-term metrics, you know, is looking for for implementation at speed. And, and I think that's when you destroy value. Our model, you know, for, we have uh, our mission is to build a new age, new era advertising, the new era, new age advertising marketing services model, and to disrupt the old has four basic tenants or amendments. You know, if we say our constitution is that, what I just described, the amendments, the first amendment is, you know, purely digital because that's where the growth is, you know, 20% growth next year, but digital will be 70% of media advertising spend uh, by uh, 2024. Secondly, this holy trinity of first-party data driving the creation of digital advertising content being distributed through digital media in a continuous loop rather than like an election campaign without an election date. 24-7, it's in the 24-7 environment, it's ideally, ideally suited to that. Thirdly, faster, better, cheaper. Faster is about agility. Better is understanding 20 or so companies that, you know, the hardware companies, the platforms, and the software companies. And then cheaper means efficiency. And then finally, our fourth principle is a unitary model. One seamless operation, one P&L, which we've, we've embarked on from the very beginning. So this wasn't something that was imposed like it has been in the holding company models. And the complications are just huge. I mean, CEOs wax lyrical about how their businesses are seamless and how they operate one PL. And when you actually get down to an operating level, it's complete BS. And you have people running individual brands for egotistical reasons, because they want to, you know, for, for good reasons, because they want to be successful and good people are egotistical and they like to get credit for what they're doing. And they, what they do is, is very good. And they're not easy to, to manage. They're difficult to manage. So that, you know, you're doing that and you're creating these verticals and it makes it impossible to bring them together. So they tell the client, you know, when they're trying to win a piece of business or when they've, they've won it or kept it, how seamless and wonderful it's going to be. And it turns into a car crash. But why does it make so much sense to integrate the assets at S4? Well, it makes sense because that's what the client wants. The client doesn't worry about where it comes to. You know, we worry about brands and everything you know when you collapse the brands you lose so much i mean this is you lose so much in terms of corporate memory if i can describe it as that corporate knowledge and and good people i mean i was talking to somebody who who was in a very strong digital unit inside one of the holding companies and you know i said why why did you leave he'd been at that company for 16 years he said well and he was he was in a part of the company that was put in the ascendancy uh, you know, sort of on top. He said, well, 
you know, we, we drove the business and, and we, we were very ambitious. And then there were four companies that were put underneath them who were equally, they were good. They were good. But what they did, because they were so ambitious, is everybody in that top company were promoted and put in charge. It's rather like when you talk to people at JWT, when, when Wonderman and JWT were merged, the joke was that you had to ha- have been at Wonderman to get a senior position. So what happens is all, all the people in JWT were demoralized. So this other guy that I was talking to had been in this organization where he was put on top. All the good people left and took clients or the clients went because the good people left. So it's a very subtle balancing. It's very difficult. I mean, you know, going through it, it explains to you how difficult it is. But doesn't the client, just back to the integration point, that how it's, the unitary structure works for S4, but you know, it's really difficult for the holding companies? You've got to remember, it's different. You know, we started with clean sheet of paper. We started with a very distinct philosophy. Those four principles are very distinct. I mean, what they say, let's look at the other side of it. You know, we're not going to do any traditional. It says, when we talk to merger candidates, what we have to say to them is, look, if you want to sell your business, we're not interested. You want to, you want to buy in because everything we've done has been half shares, half cash. And therefore, people are effectively cashing in part of their asset and they're rolling their equity, if you like, into ours. And they have to have faith in our mission and in our determination. And What about the clients, though? To the, back to the Procter and Unity. No, no, no the client, they, 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 they want access to all your resources in a seamless fashion. But if As I've got one, a competitor that's working with you, my competitor, and you're, would I be? Well, you, no, well, that you, you, know, you, you can sort that out. You can have separate organizations. Or, you know, because of the procurement pressure that clients have put on, on the agencies, I think that's made the clients in a much more difficult position to demand exclusiveness and, and all along. I mean, I think that has made it much more difficult to enforce. And then the, the conflict, you know, because of the frenemy, the situation that that you see increasingly that you know, who, who, whoever was your competitor becomes your friend. So as a frenemy, there's so many frenemy situations, particularly with digital transformation, that, that the competitive lines become blurred. I mean, there are always the bananas conflicts, as we call them. Bill, Bill Phillips at Ogilvy used to say that, you know, there are bananas conflicts, by which he meant when, when you told one client about the other, they went bananas. And there is always that. There's always that emotional conflict for which you may have to have separate separate organizations. But by and large, that, that friction has diminished. And what clients want is access to the best. I mean, there isn't McKinsey don't go through that, Goldman don't go through that. You know, they don't have to set up separate organizations. Sometimes they might have to have different teams within the same brand, but they manage to get away with it. And, you know, you've had some classic cases with those uni brands where, you know, they've been advising one client and then a year later they pop up on the other side in an M&A deal and that causes a bit of friction. But by and large, it is accepted. And the reason it's accepted, it comes back to your margin question, is because what you do is so good and so valuable that A, you get an increased margin and B, they want to work with you. But back in the day with the holding companies, it was an issue because of you didn't want the creative side to be the same with your competitor as well. For example, if I was working with WPP and I'm Unilever, I wouldn't want Procter to work with the same agency on the... Yes, but Unilever and Procter do operate within, you know, when we bought Gray, I had a big conversation with Unilever as to whether that was acceptable and vice versa with Procter as whether that was acceptable. It turned out to be acceptable because we had separate 
it comes to your point, we had separate organizations. I think this today that that friction is less. And maybe between maybe between Unilever and Procter and Gamble are a bananas conflict. But you know, you can often handle it. You may not have global brand. You may have regional brands. So you might work for Procter in Asia, and you might work for Unilever in South America, whatever it happens to be. You know, it, I'm not ducking the issue. I think that there is an issue there, but you can handle it, and you can make various different locations secure and different organizations secure. Back to the the point you made on equity, rolling the equity and structuring these deals. Why don't you use debt instead of instead of party cash, or is that more efficient? Risk, risk. Why why did we raise 113 million in 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 July? Because you know we didn't need the money immediately, but I, I just felt that it was too risky to take on debt. But there was another reason as well. We wanted a bit more flexibility because in uh, merger negotiations, it's good to have the money in the bank so that you don't have to go to shareholders. Uh, and you can do deals quickly and effectively. Because, you know, if you look at our competition, I mean, the holding companies are not in the market at all. You know, I mean, they're talking like WPP and others about getting into the market, but we'll see we'll see what they actually end up doing. And, and you know, I think selling companies, you don't want people who want to sell companies and do earnouts. You want people who are going to commit to the mission. And there is a missionary zeal here. I mean, we are we want to build that new model. And we want, you know, we want to aggressively take down the existing models. So it's happened to the emotional side, or the yeah, well, it's sort of a, a passion to this that 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 is uh, extremely, extremely important. So that's very, very important in that context. It's important to have a villain, though, right? Important to have a target. Yes, that's for sure. But in terms of the, I'm just my question was more around also the. Like how much leverage could these businesses take? Because they're so cash generative. Well, they, they can they can take about I would say in comfort two times leverage. Uh, you know the, the the private equity companies. I mean, in our area, there are a lot of private equity companies. In fact, on deals, I mean, on the client side, it's Accenture. I mean, that's the competition for us. There were the competition on BMW, the competition on Mondelez. So we're sort of two zero. Victor Knapp likes to say we've we I think we're about four or five zero up according to him. But you know, on the on the big stuff, it's sort of been two zero. But you know, they compete with us on the client side, and then compete with us on the deal side, and then PE on the deal side for private equity because they have more money than Croesus. You know, they've got about probably a trillion dollars of unleveraged equity. There's probably about they could leverage that three or four or five times. So you are talking about huge resources, and they are very aggressive. I was speaking to one of them yesterday and it just raised a new fund and he said you know we've done extremely well this year given covid we've raised new money it's not proving easy to deploy the money and the pricing the pricing has gone so private equity and accenture on the deal side now for debt i think you probably can go to two times i think private equity goes more than that but i wouldn't feel comfortable with you we've said to the market we would leverage up uh, s4 by one and a half to two. We probably have a couple of hundred million pounds of debt capacity if we wanted to push it. But I, you know, I just all the advice and you know, my, my closest financial advisor said to me when we were contemplating the equity issue, you know, go for it. So we went, we went for seventy-five million, and we upsized to to just under one hundred and fifteen million. On the price, and due to this private equity and competition coming in. Do you expect the, these assets to really increase in in price because of the cheap money and 
and competition, even though it seems like some of the... Yes, I, I mean, I, I, th I think it is. I mean, we're seeing a lot of activity in the US because they were worried about, before the year, year end, because they were worried about uh, capital gains tax increases under the Biden regime. I, I actually think probably that's um, probably being, uh, I don't think 2021 we'll see that, but we'll see. But, you know, too, if you wanted to avoid the risk, so there's a rush to complete stuff before the year end. So we are seeing a bit of frenetic activity, but with zero interest rates, people want to deploy capital. You know, somebody said to me yesterday about SPACs, you know, um, it's a good place. If you're not, get, you're not getting any money, any interest on money, you park it in a SPAC and, you know, you, you effectively have a warrant on the upside. Moving to look at the customer, how exactly are customers evolving as ad dollars are shifting digitally? Well, COVID-19 has just accelerated the transformation. I mean, you see at the consumer level, whether it be online shopping, education, health service, you know, health healthcare, financial services, in games and entertainment. You see it in media, you know, the, the further demise of the traditional, you know, uh, filling news trees, distributing newsprint, magazines and newspapers, the, the demise of traditional outdoor rather than digital, the rise of the streamers, you know, free-to-air TV being under under pressure, all of that. And then the thirdly, enterprise transformation is being driven forward at a, a more spectacular rate. You know, change agents within companies become even more and more important. So, and we see them given, being given much more oxygen within companies. So I think really we've seen just a, a tremendous acceleration in the interest and more importantly commitment because there's always been interest in digital transformation there's been lack of commitment because people said why do we have to do that we have you know we're doing okay you know before covid gdp up two three four percent you grew top line you know if you're talking about three or four percent growth that's gdp i mean there's nothing spectacular about that or difficult at least in theory, although executing to even that for them is going to be difficult. But you talk about three or four percent growth, you cut your costs and you you buy back stock, and so you increase your EPS by naught to five and five to ten. The average life of a CEO is about five years you know, of an uncontrolled listed company. So that was a good legacy to leave. What exactly are customers in sourcing between the digital creative side or digital buying side? Well, they're looking at everything. I mean, if you look at the stats, you know, with WFA, ISBAR, who, ANA, whoever it is about, you know, it's anywhere half to three quarters of clients are looking at in-housing. And, and digital, because of its 24 and 7 nature, of it, it's always on the nature, means that the traditional, let's say that, that traditional structure, the Marion Harper model, if you like, the market share model, uh, is no longer fit for purpose because it, it relies on a, a, a static model. You know, you brief the agency, the agency comes back, you rebrief the agency, you go out and film. I mean, we have a, a studio where we can instantly film. You want to produce a commercial anywhere in the world. We can instantly do it with the Epic Games Unreal Engine technology. So, so we have a huge advantage nowadays to, to produce things in at warp speed which is fit for purpose in the market which is 24 7 it is like running an election campaign without an election date you, you have your competitors sending messages you have more importantly consumer preferences changing and developing and maturing all the time so you have to respond at warp speed in a nanosecond to what you so producing a commercial in two months just doesn't make any sense. So we can do high quality stuff 
quickly and this effectively. Is for, this is only for digital, right? So I would, if I'm an FSCG company, I'd keep my TV. Well, we're actually, Mondelez is, you know, uh, a little little known thing. We're globally, including Europe, including the stuff the publicist says that they're, they're doing. We're producing TVC content, you know, television commercial content, but that comes from what we are doing digitally. So it's, you know, we, we think we put digital at the center of everything and then everything we produce can be used so it's not, it's a, you know, in the old days, well, it's still now, people strip down TV commercials and use them online. Wrong. You have to have content that is fit for the devices that you're using, whether they be an iPhone, an iPad, or whatever it happens to be. And just, I'm curious of how you look at the the creative agency relationship with the, with the clients. I mean, historically, we've seen companies like Oakley, Asagi literally have creative relationships for over 50, even some hundred years sometimes. How are these historical relationships changing given the disruption? In- well, they're being turned upside down. I mean, you know, Ford, which was the, the anchor client of WPP, brought in other agencies like Wyden and BBDO. Another client I was talking to, ex-client of WPP, been with them for years and years. I mean, the market uh, it hasn't been publicly announced, but, you know, has moved to a, a small, smaller agency. No, it happens all the time. You know, our model... Actually, you know, I think clients should be focusing on a, a number of things. They should be focusing on agility. That's that they should be focusing on because that's the attribute that everybody needs, not just in the COVID world, but generally, you know, the VUCA analysis, volatility and uncertainty. Secondly, they should be focused on first party data. I mean, the pressure on the platforms, whether it be Google and Facebook or wherever, Alibaba in China. This pressure means that first-party data is going to become even more important, so you have to focus on that. And the last thing is you have to take back control. I mean, the nature of the environment is such is that you cannot operate at arm's length. So you either have, you know, you can have an outside outsource model to an agency as long as it's they're, they're responsive and agile and faster, better, cheaper in our, in our terms. You can have an embedded thing where we embed people in the in the client. And then you can have the insourced model, which we do. You know, it's a subject of a hard business school case study, the the media case, the insourcing media, and you know that's morphed into T-Mobile or Bayer has been selected as uh, in-housing client of the year, another one of our clients. So, you know, traditional agencies have been unwilling to do this historically, you know, because it does them out of a business or does them out of the business. We're not willing. We're agnostic about that. We will do things that are in the interest of the client. So if we think in-housing makes sense and the client agrees, there's after-sales service in the sense of keeping them up to date with technology because it's difficult for clients to keep up often with technological changes. And we see more and more more verticals so we get a better better understanding. And then people, because there tends to be more churn of people because, again, good people like to work in lots of uh, verticals. So... Again, we keep them in touch and you know, we're, we're hands on keyboards if they need them in that process of change. So, so the models are very, very varied and we can offer all three. We can offer outsource, embedded, insourced. And let's just walk through that a typical customer journey, for example. Let's say I'm a big auto or FMCG business. I'm moving most of my budget digitally. How do I go about finding a partner? Do I focus on the creative content side first? And look at the. How do you find? How, how do you find? How what? do I put a review out, or how do I, you know, how how am I looking at moving part of my dollars out? I don't think that the review process is a good process. It diverts resources from the client, and diverts resources 
from the agency. And if you're the incumbent, you have to have a team running the business, making sure that trains run on time. And you have to have a, a team pitching for the business. So it's a very difficult balancing act, very, very difficult balancing act. So I think you have to be extremely careful. I think the best way is land and expand. I mean, it's best for a client to see how you work. So give us a project, see how we do. If you don't like the way we do it, we don't work, then fine. If you do, let's go on to the next. It, tremendous waste. You know, at a time in the teeth of COVID, you'd have all these reviews. You imagine the resources. And do you aim to go in with creative, yeah. with Media Monks? Is that the entry point for S4? Into- no, it can be either. You know, with uh, Mondelez, we were data and analytics, and it morphed into content. With BMW, I mean, it was a, it was a straight content thing, although we started to get involved in some media areas as well. So there's no real kind of go-to-market? No, 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 no. Uh, no, I mean, at the moment, I was talking with, uh, as I said, I was talking with our companies in Australia this morning, and what's interesting is data and analytics is, you know, first-party data. That issue is an issue that, you know, in the so-called C-suite is, is really important. And how does Mighty Hive, in this case, have an advantage over the, the Accentures or other competitors that would be bidding for, to help with that business? You know, it's, it's tor- motor torpedo boats and aircraft carriers. It's simple. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bit like saying, why is it that Tesla can do what it does, or to use a grand example, or Amazon? The answer is the incumbent, you know, are so overwhelmed by their internal structures, they can't move. But do they look for, is it a, a cost saving that the customer cares about, or is it more the quality side for the analytics and with Mighty Hive? Well, I mean, I mean, the answer probably is it's both. But I think what's driving it at the moment is primarily the qualitative side. It's it's getting the digital transformation or digital acceleration done, the change done, rather than you know just focusing on procurement or cost. And what I saw a recent sort of comment from the I think it was from WPP CEO, which actually said that they earn five to six pounds per one pound, or you know t- ten say 100 pounds allocated on Google, they earn you know, 5 6% for media buying versus it would have been much lower on TV, even though it's somewhat more concentrated with Google and Facebook being most of the digital inventory out there. Why is digital media buying somewhat more profitable than, than TV? I don't know where it gets that statistic from. It may be that it's because you know, when we were there, we, we created a thing called Zaxis, which acted as principal and bought media inventory, online inventory. That may be the reason. The thing that drives all these advertising holding groups, which people don't really talk about, well, they do talk about it, but the analysts do, is the media business. You know, if you're WPP, you have 50 billion of media buying, and your biggest customer is Google. And, you know, that's online and offline, but mainly in the case of WPP, it would be principally the online business. Same is true of publicists. You know, it has 30, 35 billion. So that, that you know, why, well, the reason why they, the advertising groups have done okay in the recession in a way, you know, WPP down about 8 or 9% this year in the top line, and people might have thought it was going to be 10 to 15, is, is the media. That's what dri- drives it. Now, I don't know where Mark gets that statistic from, but it may be Reed, that's Reed, but it may be that, He's mistakenly referred to Zaxis and the inventory product. Now, that's a controversial area. We, our model, you asked about why Mighty Hive is an advantage. Well, the advantage it has is it's transparent. 
you can't be totally transparent. You're either transparent or you're not. You're either transparent or you're opaque. Now, it's true that when we were at WPP, we went to clients and said, look, here's Axis. We can buy inventory cheaper and we can turn that inventory. We're not going to tell you what the prices are. You know, do you opt in? Havas took the opposite way. They, they just did it without going to clients and asking them to opt in. So we, we actually ripped up contracts, I think with 2,000 contracts, and went back and renegotiated each contract and said, now, you, you know, are you prepared to opt in on this basis? And I think that's probably why. Now, whether that lasts – now, first of all, there's been this great hoo-ha ever since about 2016 about transparency, driven by privacy, brand safety, interference in elections, but this controversy about transparency. There is a controversy about transparency in the digital ecosystem anyway. I mean, the more relevant statistic is not what we quoted, but what is the proportion of uh, client cost that goes through to the publisher gets to the publisher because there's so many people, so many sticky fingers. And that's where that's where uh, new technologies, blockchain technologies may be actually quite helpful in eliminating the friction and risks in the, in the channel. But I think what he was talking about, uh, and again, I think he tripped up on this inventory issue is something that irks clients a lot. Clients are very concerned about transparency. And transparency in the Indian markets and Chinese markets is really top of the pile in terms of importance. And so looking at that point then on, I mean, he, he thinks that, you know, let's just say that, for example, the buying digital media is, is somewhat more profitable than buying TV or analog media. Does scale actually matter, or is it really the, the competence in purchasing media? No, no, no. Hold on a second. You said more profitable. It may not be sustainable. Because of the transparency issue, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, it came from inventory profits. Not from, so the key is, in our view, is to have a transparent model. So, you know, YT Hive, whose margins are, are strong, they buy transparently. They don't buy as a principle, and they advise. And the more complex the landscape becomes, the better it gets. So, that's big. so, you know, if the, if the regulator did succeed in breaking the tech companies up, from our point of view, that wouldn't be a bad thing because it would make it makes more complex. I don't think the regulator would be correct in doing that. What advantage does merging or having media monks and mighty hive closer together or more integrated have versus the Accentures or other businesses in there? Well, I, you know, again, it comes back to the motor torpedo boat versus the... Uh, the aircraft carrier. I mean, it's really to have a fully integrated business where people work, you know, that much overwork work seamlessly together. You know, it's like I had on the call uh, Australia. I had our content people and our and our data and analytics uh, and digital media people, and they they work to extremely closely. We have uh, one office. We're moving towards one office uh, in in each city. We operate, I think, in about forty six cities in thirty countries, and. We're moving, actually, what COVID has done, the great thing about COVID, if there is a great thing, I shouldn't say that, about 1.6 million people have been being killed by this virus. At least it's probably higher, given the lack of veracity of the statistics. But you know, one of the things it's done is made us eject offices and reduce the number of offices much more quickly than we would have done anyway. So we're coming together. So Sydney is a very good example. You know, Melbourne, we're already probably in, in one building already because of jettisoning leases but in sydney we'll we'll move together as well just focus on the on the consultancies for for a moment and the kind of deep relationships they have at the c-suite and doing digital transformation well accenture had a deep relationship bmw didn't do them any good in the review why do you think that is 
You have to ask them. I've got no idea. <laughs> but would you be looking to move S4 somewhat into that realm potentially? Well, I think we we have continuous debates about, you know, I think there is a, a fourth leg, if you like, beyond first-party data, digital advertising content and uh, digital media into something more strategic. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, a lot of what we do is very strategic and we have this continuous debate. I don't want to, to take on board these heavy structures that the agencies have, you know. I mean, the problem the agencies have is they're most highly paid people are the overpaid people. They're overpaid. And, and you, you get this imbalance, you know, the, the, the growing parts of the business, the ones that are probably underpaid, and the, 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 yeah, which is natural. I mean, it's, it's the analog that, you know, where the resources were devoted to historically. So, so their, their salary structures are, are, are much more. They also get you into accounts, right? Those big strategic relationships with the C-suite can get you into bigger accounts sometimes. Well, you, you know, you make a sweeping statement there. They're sticky. They're, they're sticky relationships, right? The extensions that have the Deloitte's with these companies, they're long. So I, I'm not sure about Accenture and Deloitte. I think, you know, you say about McKinsey or BCG or Bain, yes. Deloitte, Capgemini, Accenture, I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, if you were at a company and you wanted to, when WPP wanted a strategic review, it went to McKinsey. When the board well, wanted, more digital transformation stuff, right? So less, more in the ERP transformation. Yeah, but that's but but that's different. Yeah, well, that's what I was referring to with the more strategic stuff. Well, well, I think I think Accenture do do a good job, and as I said, they are our competition both on the client side and the deal side of the business. So, and I've said that extensively elsewhere, that they are the competition that we fight on a day-by-day basis. Are there any barriers to non-technology advertisers, so I guess FMCG and autos, switching from agencies of record? If there, was, if there was anything. Well, there's inertia and there's, you know, this is the way we've done it for 50 years and this is the way we continue. But, you know, I think COVID-19 was such a shock to the system that, you know, if there's any good that comes out of it, as I said, you know, change agents inside the companies have been given more oxygen. So if you were, you know, going away, I said the steady state model of GDP growth of two to three or four percent, no inflation, no pricing power, focus on costs, you know, reduce your costs, increase your share buybacks, get five to ten percent. That was the stir of EPS growth, naught to five percent of EPS growth. That was the the model that that, you know, sort of just went along. That was be, that's been disturbed and the shock, tremendous shock to the system. In Q2, profits were off by 50%. So colossal changes as a result. So the, the model has been disrupted and changed. What would you do if you were running WPP today? I'd break it up. It's served its purpose. It's gone. And, and you know, the, the, the senior management of WPP have no financial interest in the company, virtually nothing. So there is a separate ownership and control. It's a job. So they, they want to retain their jobs. It's rather like what's happened in Australia. Australia you know, they, they bring in a, a guy from Germany who you know, loses the confidence of people inside the, inside the business. WPP have come along and bail, bailed them out. I mean, he doesn't care. But that, that would be the same for Omnicom as well then? He got a large payment for coming into the business. He'll get probably get a large payment on his exit from the business. No, Omnicom is different. I mean, Omnicom... You know, John Wren has been at it for many, many years. I don't think I've said this before. He doesn't have a strategic bone in his body, but he does execute well. But, you know, I was talking to an investment banker yesterday and knows them well. You know, I think John has been very shrewd during the uh, COVID crisis. He put in massive provisions, which nobody has really raised a question about. And I think Omnicom is probably likely to emerge from this recession. The other thing that shocks me 
is that Omnicom is the only agency group that doesn't report supposedly net revenues. Actually, they do. If you go to their presentations, all you have to do is to subtract pass-through costs. And their top line is actually down at the end of the third quarter by about 8%, which is roughly the same as WPP. And people are focused on the top line because of the pass-through costs. And because Omnicom tends to be a bit much more, much more of a black box from an analytical point of view. But you know, they, they have done better than people think and they've taken very heavy provisions. They took provisions for a million square feet of office space. IPG took for 500,000 square feet of office space. These are sort of non-cash provisions. Must be some cash provisions there as well, but not basically non-cash provisions that will buttress their profitability as they go into 21. So you should see a sharp snapback. The, the big question about the holding companies is whether it's a dead cat bounce in Q2. I mean, in Q2 was the worst this year. It'll be the easiest to cycle, but WPP this morning said they're not going to get back to 2019 until 22. So the rebound next year, which you would have expected, when you look at the GDP, minus five, minus four to five this year, plus four to five next year, maybe five to six next year. So, and, you know, just as we're talking, I'm seeing headlines saying that from Goldman saying that the consensus underestimates the rebounds. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm very bullish on 21 because of the GDP rebound driven by vaccines, the tailwinds from Euro 21 and Tokyo 21. However, those tournaments are uh, implemented, uh, however full they are, full on they are. And last but not least, the the tailwinds that are around us, the micro tail round winds around us that make life for us really interesting next year around BMW and around um, Mondelez and everything else. If we just take media monks, what would you say their competitive advantage would be in winning new content business? Well, it's what, what I've said. I mean, it, 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 it all stems around the, sounds rather glib, the faster, better, cheaper. What we, the alternative way of describing it is speed, quality, value. The faster, as I said, is about agility, better about understanding. You know, worth running through the companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba, TikTok, depending where it goes, uh, Apple, Microsoft, Adobe, Oracle, Salesforce, IBM, SAP, uh, Twitter, Snap, Pinterest, LG, Samsung, Spotify, Netflix. Can't the holding companies win some of this business? Well, they, they do. You know, I was just talking in Australia. We, we, there were two big uh, Adobe-driven pitches in Australia. We didn't pitch one of them. We weren't invited on one of them. Uh, on the other one, we won. Who do we win against? The incumbent was AKQA. So, so they can do. I'm sure. I'm sure, and they will try to. But as I say, you know, their organisation gets in their way. So, when looking at driving a real competitive advantage as a network over the next five to ten years as S four, what do you really focus on? Well, th- those four things. Well, I mean, the ones what I have said. You know, focus purely on digital. It's half the business at the, at the moment. It'll be seventy percent within a few years. You know, understanding the model, the Holy Trinity model, faster, better, cheaper, and the unitary structure. Those are the four things, and that's what applies to our content practice around Media Monks and our data and digital media practice around Mighty Hive. From a capital allocation point of view, it's, it's obviously allocating this cash flow to grow plus issuing equity for earnings for new managers. 
Well, I mean, our, st our structure remains the same. We, we don't pay a dividend at the moment. I'm, you know, we've said that we'll probably pay a nominal dividend in, in due course, but we're, you know, the rates of return that we get, you know, the capital allocation process, where can you get the better return? And we, better return is by investing in our business. You know, for example, our, our epic investment in uh, Fortnite investment in in India in the new technologies. Uh, you know, our production centers in Buenos Aires or in New Delhi or Kazakhstan or the Ukraine or whatever it happens to be. And that's what those are. Those are data centers, data and analytics centers, and obviously investing in M and A. And the structures of our deals remain the same. Basically, half shares, half cash, no earnouts, because that creates fragmentation. That's part of the problem. I mean, WPP will probably all go off and buy companies, and we'll have people who want to sell, which is a key thing. I mean, you don't want people to sell; you want people to buy in or sell into your to your company, and you want people to continue. It's no good having companies drop dead after the earnouts. With the land and expand, now you're given to these bigger accounts like Mondelez or Mini. How far can you go? Back to the question around, you know, going into different parts of the corporate structure. We started with brand awareness in uh, 2018, last half. In 2019, it was about sort of uh, after going through awareness, brand trial. And then, so trial in 2019, and then we moved to conversion at scale, the 20 squared objective around 20 whoppers, which actually, you know, if we, we didn't have a, a cent or a dollar of revenue, and those would mean that we'd be recreating $400 million of, of revenue. But, you know, a lot of these clients are clients we work with, so we've identified the five, the top five. We've identified another five where we're running at five, ten to fifteen, five to ten to fifteen million dollars of revenue a year, and then we've identified another ten where we think we have potential. So, so where where we will think we will get. So over the next couple of years, we want to get to twenty clients of twenty million more or, or revenue or more. So, so the answer is priorities for next year. You know, obviously consolidating. Our organic growth and growing more whoppers. Number two, unifying the business even more strongly through rebranding, which you'll, you'll see shortly when we launch the rebranding. And then thirdly, continuing to expand our offer by adding, broadening our capabilities within the three pillars of first-party data, digital advertising content, and digital media. In the long run, another pillar? No, no, I think we'll, we'll stick to those three. I mean, we, we may move up the funnel strategically. Uh, we may do more in the, way of, in the way of systems integration, but that's really within the three pillars that we, the, the, or three areas that we're interested in, the two pillars as we've created them, content and data and analytics and digital media. Last question, and biggest challenge you're facing? I wouldn't say it's a challenge, it's an opportunity, it's, it's, the, it's the conversion at scale. We have to demonstrate these, where this model works at scale. We've already won business at scale. Now we have to do it, not just show that it works in those cases, but go well beyond.